Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for being on cue. Thank you, Sean, for queuing them up. Welcome to Position of Neutrality. Welcome to New Freedom. For all of 2023, we have opened this session with a prayer, and tonight a special treat. Karen is going to come open us up. described by the authors of this book has been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances. Yes? yes. We have to agree on a certain set of facts, right? <laughs> so what we do here is try and find our experience within the experience they detail. So I'm not here to tell you your experience. I'm here to show you how I find my experience and encourage you to have yours. And if we both do our job, we'll share a spiritual experience in this room tonight. How many of you have been here before and can witness for folks that happens? So for those of you online, they're raising their hand. For those of you in the room that don't know, you haven't been told, in 12-step recovery, when we speak of a spiritual experience, we're talking about a sensory experience, something tangible. You'll feel it. And when you do, I'll know, and I'll call it to your attention because we would cheat you to talk to you about the power we call God without giving you a demonstration. Well, that's another thing if you're new here. When I say God, they say, they say power because it's interchangeable. The experience of God is power to live in me and in you. Does that make sense? And the other thing we do here is we are now on the tablets for 33,000 men and women in the Department of Corrections. and 7,000 men and women in the Maricopa County jail system. And it is important to all of us that you let them know that you are here and there is a place for them should they decide to come get their feet under them. Fair enough? 
One more yell out to everybody. They're a long ways off right now. So thank you very much for that. Tonight we're going to take a look at step 12. Step 12 states having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, not as a result, as the result. We tried to carry this message. What message? You agree with him? Yeah, the message is my spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And that awakened state is the direct effect why I'm here now witnessing to somebody else who needs a spiritual awakening, if that makes sense. Yes? So that's the whole thing with step 12. The whole purpose of the steps, the whole purpose of 12-step recovery is not abstinence, as if you got all your recovery from fellowship rooms, you might think. Because we celebrate abstinence in recovery fellowships, don't we? We give chips, like virtually for every day. It's like a participation trophy, right? But if you want to get free, if you really want to get into the manner of living described by these authors, then my goal is not abstinence, because if I'm honest, I don't live well abstinent. My goal is to awaken spiritually and then to serve radically. And in that service, I experience what I like to call spiritual inebriation. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Some of you know what I'm talking about. I feel you feeling it. Got a room full of spirit junkies, I can tell already. So we're in working with others. We're on page 89 of the book. If you're following along in the book, and it says practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. So when they say it works, what do they mean? What's the it? it intensive work with other alcoholics works when other activities fail. So there's a promise and a condition. What was the promise? <laughs> let Sean be the Debbie Downer in the room? Yeah. <laughs> Immunity is accessible through intensive work with others and other activities will fail. If you don't serve when you're called to serve, there will come a time when you will not be able to bring to consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, you'll be without defense against the first drink, and if you're like me, you will drink or drug again. That's what the authors witness to. That's why we serve. We don't serve because we're saints. We serve because in the service comes the progressive freedom. Right? All right, so it says this is our 12th suggestion, colon. So the... Well, suggestion isn't the selfish reason that if I don't do it, I don't have immunity, right? That's why in self-interest, if I know the only way I can get immunity is to serve, then I'll serve, right? But that's not the 12th suggestion because self has been the problem. So at some point in our spiritual journey, we're going to realize that every gnarly thing I ever got brought through has purposed me for this moment to bring someone else through it. And in a room like this, you guys got to see the power in that. Yes? Okay. All right, so it says, carry this message to other alcoholics. Exclamation point. What message? If you will offer yourself in service to another, you will have immunity from your addiction to synthetic spirits. Does it make sense? Okay. Notice how it says carry this message. It doesn't say shout it. It doesn't say preach it. Apparently, my sermon is my walk. The evidence is for you to examine. Am I changed or am I not changed? And if I am changed and you think I was anything like you, would you like to know how that change came about? Yes? Okay. 
And then it says, you can help when no one else can. So they're giving us a little pump up. Some of you have been through some fairly difficult experiences. Is that understatement for some of you? Yet you survived them. Who but you can look at someone who's sure their life is over because of what has occurred for them? Who but you? And the answer is absolutely nobody. You have been perfectly purposed through all those trials to be a warrior for redemption. So it says you can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember they're very ill. Life will take on new meaning. So, so some more promises of service. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. Let me call your attention to the experience. You guys that are members here, I, I noticed last couple weeks ago a fellow from the Denver area came up and wanted to talk about how when I say God, you say power. And so they've started in Denver. Anytime anyone says God, they shout out power. And what they wanted to know is who is this group? What, who is this group that you've got so energetic? And I thought, well, we need to tell them. All of these men and women, or at least 98% of them, have qualified to come to new freedom and get a new life because they caught a beef in Arizona and they went to the Arizona Department of Corrections. And in 90 days, their life is completely transformed because for however long it took them to get here, we believed in them, we prepared a place for them, and now they're here preparing a place for the next 10,000. And that's why we say it's an experience you must not miss, because it's more than a sight. It's the tangible awareness of purpose as we walk the halls every day. Yes? And then it says, we know that you'll not want to miss it. Would any of you want to miss the experience you already are having, no matter how long you've been here, just watching people come running back and say, I got a car and a title? or at least a note that says it's mine. Anyone know what I'm talking about? I've got a driver's license. I've never had a driver's license. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. Do you think that's true in Phoenix, Arizona today? Could happen, right? So it says you can easily find some by asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals. They'll be only too glad to assist you. Don't start out as an evangelist or a reformer. What's that mean? Back to my point. The, the, the sermon is the walk, not the talk. I don't talk unless I'm asked. And when I'm asked what happened, I tell them who did it. It didn't have anything to do with me. His power, his love, his way of life. That's why it happened. Okay. All right. So unfortunately, a lot of prejudice exists. You'll be handicapped to arouse it. Ministers and doctors are competent, and you can learn much from them if you wish. But it happens that because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So they got a doctor's opinion here, and they had religious opinions throughout the book. But the experience of an addict to alcohol or other substances has a unique experience in the effect those chemicals have on me when I ingest them. The doctor said it may be the manifestation of an allergy. And for years in our fellowships, people didn't, that didn't make sense. Any of you been amongst those people? What do you mean I'm allergic to? Or you heard the jokes, when I drink, I break out in handcuffs. <laughs> right? But what we're talking about with the manifestation of an allergy, we're talking about the abnormal reaction that happens when I put those chemicals in my body because I'm not like those other people. When I put alcohol in my body, it energizes me. Have any of you had that experience? I found opiates also energize me. Now, the only weird thing about that is that's not what they're supposed to do. I'm energized by sedatives, and I'm calmed by stimulants. 
So I can understand reasons for doing things that perhaps you can't understand if you don't know my experience. That doesn't make me special or learned. It just makes me set apart. Okay. So then it says, to be helpful is our only aim. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. And if he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. Have any of you been talked to by somebody who was concerned by your active addiction? Did you find them less than persuasive? When you finally realized that you needed to go a different direction, did you need any persuasion other than your own cycle of addiction? So the great persuader is the chemical itself and my response to it, not outside forces. Yes? Okay. So it says this advice is given for his family also. They should be patient realizing they're dealing with a sick person. So me, as a person who has been deeply emotionally and mentally disturbed and have been raised from that, I can comfort that parent and say, look, I can see their human potential. I need you to speak that to them while we walk them through the process of coming to know who they are and whose they are. Because once they know that, they'll walk away and you'll never know all of this degradation prepared them for a life of service. Um, if there's any indication he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife, get an idea of his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, and his religious leanings. You need this information to put yourself in his place to see how you'd like him to approach you if the tables were turned. So you're going to need to get, remember how we learned about prayer and meditation in the last couple of lessons? Why am I going to pray and meditate? because I want to see how, I'm going to think about who I want to approach that needs to be approached, and then I want to pray, how would I like to be approached if the roles were reversed, usually based on some bad experience I had by being approached that was less than effective or kind or loving. But I don't want to duplicate that experience. I want to see how much better it would have been if I had been compassionate and loving and non-judgmental, non and that spirit in me will empower me to do that. Does that make sense? And it really helps to know their religious leanings because I won't use certain words with someone who proclaims themselves atheist or agnostic because it'll just prejudice them. And I'm not talking about theologies anyway. I'm talking about tangible power. I'm talking about the power to live. I'm talking about the one who sent me to you. Well, you think it's an accident I'm standing in front of you? Dude, I don't get sent out to cheat, treat hangnails. Okay. Okay, so... I'm going to jump from there um, over to page 91. Most of us, when we first start out on this, we meet them. For you guys, a lot of you met them on prison yards. You, you meet them in meeting halls. You meet them wherever you meet them. Um, as you grow in this, you meet them in more places. Okay. So it says, see your man alone if possible. So how many of you have tried to do that in a recovery meeting? Get in the car. Yeah. Get so Sean steals them kidnaps him. Um, how many of you understand what he's talking about? Though? How many of you tried to meet people in fellowship meetings and they're swarmed with people about opinions about their lives? And so it's hard to get through the fog, isn't it? So what we want to do is get them alone so we can have a heart to heart, not to tell them what to do, but to tell them what's been done through me and see if they're ready to receive any of that. Yeah? Sure. So at first, engage in general conversation. One of the things that's interesting about all of us, even if we got raised in a church, is we know religious talk when we hear it. And when we're in our running and gunning phase, anybody that starts talking that, we know we're in for a lecture, don't we? So the power of 12-step recovery is we're not here to, dem to deliver lectures. We're here to deliver deliverance. I am the vessel of your deliverance. And you can accept it or not. And I only know this because here you are and I've been delivered. Okay. So it says, after a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. 
Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. You ever wonder why you do that four-step inventory? Yeah, you might want to get armed with the facts about yourself, so by the time you get to 12, you can tell them about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences. If I'm going to bear witness, I want to be properly armed for my testimony, do I not? If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You'll thus get a better idea how you ought to proceed. We've got to be careful not to talk over them in the early phases because it's easy to do. That just means they've shut down hearing. And you can talk a long time with people who can't hear, and then you'll be mad at how they respond. But if you pay attention to the energy, you'll understand in short order whether they're receiving you or not, won't you? Yeah. Come on, I'm talking to a bunch of people in here that have had to talk to people about all kinds of serious matters. And you knew how to read the energy. Yes? You didn't survive what you came through without knowing how to read the energy. If he's not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit. But say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my story to level the playing field. I'm not going to try and out-bad you, because that's useless. But I am going to tell you I know something about behaving in ways I didn't intend and doing it until I offended everyone who ever cared about me. Until they locked me away and said he's completely hopeless and who gives a shit about what he thinks or does. I know what that feels like. And I know what it's like to be relieved from it. Make sense? Who's feeling me? There you go. Says, but say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. Why do you think they did that? I have no idea. Did you catch him? You know why he said that? How many of you have been redeemed from a hopeless state of mind and body? There you are. How many of you know how that was done? It's above our pay grade, isn't it? If we're honest, one day I'm doing this every day no matter what. Lock me up, chain me down, do whatever, tell me I'm dead, don't care. And then one day, pow, I never do it again. How'd that happen? How'd that happen? It's above my pay grade, but I can tell you who did it. And it wasn't me, but he sent me to you. Does it make sense? Okay. So it says, if he's in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor has caused you, being careful not to moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, tell him numerous stories of your escapades and get him to tell some of his. So Sean's reason for stealing them in the car is just to get a conversation started. See, see what the heck they got to say and let me tell them a little bit about me and see if they're curious how I got well when they hear the deplorable state I once was in. Because it is kind of weird. We clean up pretty fast. You ever notice that? Yeah. No matter how far down we take it, we clean up pretty good. Okay, so when he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how baffled you were and how you finally learned that you were sick. So you might want to look at how baffled were you? How did you finally learn that you were sick? Sean got it because they went to detox and he had enough respect for medical science. If they put him in detox, he must have had sufficient reason to be in detox. How many of you went to lots of detoxes and that was not sufficient? So Sean's not wrong, he's just telling you what it was for Sean. He learned he was sick because he trusted what the doctor said about him. And he weighed it with his own experience. How many of you had doctors tell you, if you don't quit, you won't be dead? How many of you were unimpressed with that opinion? So I was baffled by my seeming inability to get stopped, but I was unable to accept someone else's opinion about my condition. Couldn't hear it. And it was indeed baffling. But when I came to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and more importantly, when I came to someone who knew this power and took me through this process, I found out that I was a lot of things, selfish, dishonest, inconsiderate, full of guilt, shame, remorse, which caused a lot of aberrant behavior, 
But underlying all of that, I was very sick emotionally and mentally. And sometimes people don't understand that about themselves, but I learned it was a fact. And it, was, it wasn't until I learned how sick I had been and what I'd been redeemed from that I had any capacity to walk up to someone in a similar sickness and lift them out. Make sense? Okay. So it says, show him the struggles you made to stop. Show him the queer or the, the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. That's another thing you may see in your inventory. How many of you had some clean time and then seemingly for no reason that you could even come up with, all of a sudden didn't have any clean time? <laughs> so what was the thought right before the spree? How many of you were working a regular job, doing something you did every day, you were good? They talk about Jim, the car guy, we'll look at that later. But everyone you're working with said, hey man, it's been a tough week, I think I'd like to go out and have a few drinks, let some steam off. Any of you ever had that happen when you were not picking up no matter what? And then maybe the thought comes, well I had a rough week too. I'd like to go let a little steam off. Anything like that ever happened to you? Why can't I go have a few drinks? That's what my mind would say. Any of you ever had that question come up? Any of you act on that? I found out why I couldn't. I don't know what you learned. I went out and had a few drinks, let a little steam off from that hard week. I ended up living under a bush. <laughs> the rest of those kids went, went home and then back to work, not me. So it's not a rule. It's just be best if I didn't drink. Does it make sense? Okay. So it says, uh, we suggest you do this as we've done it in the chapter on alcoholism. If he's alcoholic, he'll understand you at once. He'll match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. So that chapter, more about alcoholism, talks to you about Jim, the car guy. He didn't drink at all until he was 30, 35. And then he had a bit of a nervous disposition. He started drinking a little. He owned a car dealership. He eventually was vigorous enough with his drinking that he lost the car dealership that he owned and he found himself having to go to work for that car dealership that he once owned. And they recount that Jim was a little agitated on his way to work that day. Any of you relate to having to take a lesser job because of your vacation and a better living through chemistry? And now you had to go to a job less than what you thought was right for you? and maybe experienced a little agitation. So Jim had a little agitation. He gets there, he has a few words with the boss. Nothing serious. Any of you ever had a few words with the boss? Nothing serious. Jim went to his desk and got an idea that he maybe ought to go out in the woods looking for people to buy cars Why are you laughing? Have I got car salesmen in here? <laughs> They're just talking about the way we think, right? There's no customers here. I believe I'll go out in the woods looking for people to buy cars. So although he's at the dealership where people come to buy cars, he's going to go rope him some. <laughs> and on his way out to these woods where car buyers hang out that don't come to dealerships, he decides he's a little hungry, so he'll stop at a little roadside place where they have a bar. But that's no concern to old Jim, because he does not pick up, no matter what. How many times have you heard that bullshit? Does that ever resonate with you as even remotely true? Dude, I pick up no matter what. Anyway, Jim goes into the place, he orders a sandwich and a glass of milk, and then the thought came to him, you know, I could have a shot of whiskey if I ordered another sandwich and glass of milk, and it wouldn't hurt me on a full stomach. 
And that experiment went so well that he had another. And then another. And thus started another trip to the asylum for Jim. And you'll notice in that storytelling, at some point the sandwiches and the milk were no longer needed. One can assume since it ended in the asylum, the shot of whiskey persisted. So they're, de they're delineating that for us. They talk about a jaywalker who keeps getting hit by the cars, progressively getting more hurt. They said, place your addiction in the same place as the jaywalker and see if any of you have gone any of that. So if you can relate to any of that stuff, then you understand, and this is the point at which you understand that you may have a more serious condition than you've been le leading yourself to believe, right? All right, so it says, if you're satisfied that he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. So I, they've made some specific words. When do they talk to us about the real alcoholic? It would help to read their book because that's early in the discussion. They talk about moderate drinkers. They talk about hard drinkers. And then they say, what about the real alcoholic? And they start talking about how he, he's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Seldom mildly intoxicated, he's always more or less insanely drunk. And it goes on and on to lots of other descriptions. So if you start hearing about these personality changes, if you start hearing about insane levels of intoxication or you're seeing how many of you were drinkers any drinkers in here oh good a whole bunch of us so did any of you have a toxicity level that was impressive even to the medical people <laughs> me too so sometimes when we're insanely drunk or insanely high we don't think ourselves that but we might hear things from the detox, dude, you should be hospitalized. Right? Okay. All right. So begin to do, if you're satisfied that he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. So what is the hopeless feature of the malady? And even when I stop for some period of time, all this knowledge will not prevent me from starting again in light of my experience. So it says, show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. So the, they talk about the queer mental condition, my blank spot, that inability to bring to consciousness with sufficient force that memory of suffering and humiliation. Right? When I want released from myself and I decide to release myself with synthetic spirits like cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, fentanyl, alcohol, I don't have a processing plant that tells me this isn't going to go well, or I know it's not going to go well, and in my current condition, I don't care. Does that make sense? So, I mean, I used to hear it in the rooms. It's alcoholic insanity is doing the same thing, expecting different results. And that's fine, but it's not true. That's not what the authors say. Because I are an alcoholic. And I did it, again, with no expectation of a different result. I would look right at you and say, this is going to suck, like really bad. But here we go. I hope you're not too attached. Uh, <laughs> um, so it said, don't, don't at this stage refer to this book unless he's seen it and wishes to discuss it. And be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea that he can still control his drinking, tell him possibly he can. If he's not too alcoholic. Do you think we're throwing him under the bus? I've heard people in the fellowships, well, oh, you'll send them out to drink. Nah, they were already heading there. I ain't sending them nowhere. I don't have that kind of power. I'm just telling them the truth you don't want to tell them. 
The truth is, if you have this abnormal reaction that I have, the likelihood is you will die in it or you will go to jail or you'll go to the insane asylum because that's where people like you and me go. But I can support you in any decision you have. You may not be alcoholic enough. And I will tell you to a person, no, no one wants to be told they're not addict enough. We will argue with you. Wait, let me tell you this one. We're not throwing them under the bus. We're getting them to try and get honest with themselves so they have a potential to get honest with us so we can help them sort out their thoughts. That's all. All right, so continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. So what are those conditions of body and mind? I have an abnormal reaction to the chemical. When other people stop, I can't stop. No matter how sedated I should be, I don't act as a sedated person. I act as an energized person. And that knowledge won't keep me from doing it again. Yes? Make sense? Okay. So keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. So I really can't talk to them about theirs anyway, can I? I just met them. I don't know anything about their experience, but I can tell them of mine. And if they're anything like me, they're going to relate to me, even if it's not a happy experience for them. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are rightly loath to tell alcoholic patients the whole story unless it'll serve some good purpose, but you may talk to them about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. See, why take someone to a place of hopelessness if you don't offer a solution? That's just cruelty. You understand that the solution I offer, although in me, is not of me. I don't offer you a solution of which meetings to attend. I don't offer you a solution of what step are you in. The steps have no power other than to reveal the power to me through me, to improve consciousness of that power in me that sent me to them, and to introduce them in a tangible way to that spiritual solution. Because if lack of power is my dilemma because of I am powerless in the face of synthetic spirits, then I need a real spirit that is more powerful than the synthetic to pull me back. Yes? And that is the solution I offer. Not a theory, a tangible sensory experience which will change your mind regardless of what your current belief is. Yes? Okay. So it says, you'll soon have your friend admitting he has many, if not all, the traits of an alcoholic. So I can cop to some of it, maybe not all of it, but I have had some scrapes that are hard to explain without starting with, I drank too much and then found the dope man. <laughs> you know, if I'd started that with I had salad before dinner, it would not have the same effect, would it? If his own doctor is willing to tell him, that, tell him that he's alcoholic, so much the better. Even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he's become very curious to know how you got well. So that's what we're trying to do, is just pick their curiosity a little bit so they'll ask, because we're not giving them anything they don't ask for. The polite nature of this power within us. Yes? And then it says, let him ask you that question if he will. Then they say in italics, tell him exactly what happened to you. I won't know that unless I've been armed with the facts about myself through this process and started in this life of service. I just won't know that. I'll say things like, well, I started coming to meetings. And they had answers for me, and I've been making coffee. I don't know, 30 days. Coffee makers make it. So tell them exactly what happened to you. Stress the spiritual feature freely. So guys, you got to get this. Exactly what happened to me was I drank and drugged to homelessness. I was perfectly okay with dying homeless. 
I just would have liked to know when. And I ended up in one more detox after a terrible run where I just destroyed everybody who ever cared about me just by watching me in that recklessness. And in that detox, I was introduced to a man who introduced me to a power, and I have never been the same. It was a long time ago. I still serve with all the fervor I did then. You know why? Because in self-interest, I must serve. Once I know that I am here to serve, what else can a servant do but serve? Right? So, says he can choose if, if the man be agnostic or atheist, atheists make it emphatic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. They say that important because it was important to Bill to know all he had to do was be willing to believe there's a power greater than himself. Guys, this is not rocket science. If cocaine, methamphetamine, alcohol, fentanyl have consumed your life and everything worthwhile in your life, then it is a power greater than you. And if you're not willing to admit that, you are wasting valuable high time. I ain't bullshitting, it's just the truth. We don't come to these rooms by choice. It's the biggest lie in the world. I choose not to drink. I made that choice a lot. Right before I burned the fucking house down. Let me tell you a little secret. You don't choose recovery, you're chosen for recovery. And the chosen don't choose. They just accept the calling, and we start walking in a calling rather than a curse. Yeah. So he can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. So we're immediately going to point him to the power within them. We're not going to tell them any theological stories. We're going to point to the experience of that spirit jumping in them when we jump charge them a little bit. We've been working on a product, Wayne and Brian and I have been working on a product, and we were talking about what do they mean when they talk about depth and weight that reaches and holds these alcoholic, these addictive types. And I, I don't know what they call that machine that they shock you with when your heart stops. The defibrillator. We come and defibrillate you spiritually. We start that dead spirit within you, and then he takes over if you'll just serve. Because the spirit's not dead. <laughs> when dealing with such a person, you'd better use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. There's no use in arousing any prejudice he may have against certain theological terms and conceptions about which he may already be confused. Don't raise such issues no matter what your own convictions are. All right, you're coming up, huh? Your prospect may belong to a religious denomination. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he's going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. Guys, for a long time ago, we stopped talking to the religious people. Half the, half the original fellowship were religious people dying in their addiction. And the other half were atheists or agnostics. And we've deflected, and we just want to talk to atheists or agnostics, and we quit telling them the truth. What got Billy, Bill well so he could start all this stuff was Ebby told him the truth. He gave him a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. He said, that power that we call God power. lives in you. And if you will acknowledge that power in you and walk in this manner of living, that power will prove himself to you through you. That's a fact. Doesn't matter what you believe. None of us can fully define or comprehend that power. 
but we can bear witness to it and improve consciousness of it in and on our lives, can we not? Why does anyone do any less truth than that? Because of my people-pleasing nature? Okay, so I'm going to go from there to 94. It says, outline the program of action explaining how you made a self-appraisal, how you straightened out your past and why you're now endeavoring to be helpful to him. So it would help if I have made a self-appraisal. When have I made a self-appraisal? Yeah, the very first step of action is this fourth step, this fearless searching inventory within me. Why would I do that? Well, and because the calamities, pumps, and worships, my responses to life, those types of things, have obscured my consciousness, my awareness of being aware of that power in and on my life. If I'm atheist or agnostic, I just am unaware. If I'm religious, I feel unworthy. Any of you ever felt unworthy? Because unworthy or worthy got nothing to do with it. Whatever you think you've done, if it has a name, you didn't start it. Okay. Um, and then it says it's important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Do you understand what they mean when they say vital? I won't live long if I don't keep carrying this message. It's not enough to just show up somewhere. I need to continually bear witness in my life for what this power has done for me. Do you think I, some of you guys don't know, I went to school in Cambridge in the UK, among other things. I may, you guys may not know what that means, but that's a pretty sophisticated education. Let me tell you what I never imagined while I'm sitting there at Cambridge that at retirement age, I was going to be running around a re-entry center for people coming out of prison. But I am blessed and humbled to be here serving you, and I hope to do it for a long time to come. So I'm going to read down a little further. It says your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all the program. So at some point, people don't understand why they should go forward. How many of you have had reasons? How many of you didn't really even understand what all the program was until someone really broke it down for you? That's part of our problem is that we, we've taught people over the years it's about sitting in chairs and being abstinent and that's just nonsense for a guy like me. It's not going to work. I'm not going to be able to hold my seat. Um, he re may rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning which requires discussion with other people. How many of you have had that problem? You weren't that worried about writing something down on a list, maybe, but you sure as hell didn't want to talk to anyone about it. Any of you had that? Okay. So it says, do not contradict such views. Tell him you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether you would have made much progress had you not taken action. So that, first of all, that'll have to be true for you, right? If, if I haven't taken that action and haven't had a radical deliverance from a limiting thought pattern, then I'm not going to have any credible telling you about it, am I? Because we do, in recovery, we kind of do know when we're being spun, don't we? But if I tell you, look, man, I read a lot of stuff about me I didn't want to tell. I damn sure didn't want to tell them to the first guy that was paying attention to me in years. But when I did, years of weight came off of me. Like I all of a sudden knew that I could survive, and I even hoped I could thrive. And I was coming out of the hospital, and it wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. Any of you relating to what I'm saying? And so I understand that you're afraid to go through it, but I'm telling you, when you confront that fear, you will experience a deliverance like you have never experienced. And you will never have to return to that pig trough again as long as you serve. Um, 
So then it says on the first visit, tell them about the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. They used to be a little clearer about the fellowship versus the program. We have places where we meet. That's the fellowship. Before you go to the fellowship, we'd like you to enter into the manner of living, manner of living so that you can be a meaningful part of the fellowship. It was a separate thing, right? If he, if he shows any interest, then lend him a copy of the book. The program has always been in the book. In, in fact, the book is named Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism, and the fellowship was named after the book, not the other way around. So when you say I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous or I'm in the program and you're not in the book, you're deceived. Does it make sense? Okay. So I'm going to jump because I got to jump. I'm going to run out of time. I'm going to go over to 96. It says do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. Guys, we don't save them and we don't kill them. Our responsibility is to deliver the message to them. Regardless of what we're thinking at the time. It may feel a little uncomfortable at first. Right? And some will get well and some won't. You're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. You will recognize them when they accept with eagerness what you offer and what you offer them is access to this power that's now animating you. Make sense? Um, we find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship and failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. Any of you that come from religious traditions, you understand that we have people that are prophets and we know they're prophets because they prophesy and what they speak of happens. True? And then if you're not of that persuasion, I thought I'd give you that explanation. So the man they're talking about is Bill Wilson, famous, famously atheist agnostic persuasion. But he made this declaration throughout his recovery journey that if he'd have wasted his time on those six or eight guys he was working with in New York and had not focused on going to Ohio and meeting Dr. Bob and all the things, many people would have been deprived. To date, that's 80 some years ago, many millions would have been deprived had he stopped because of that egoic pursuit. So if you doubt that this guy's prophetic, think about the profundity of that prophecy. Right? Because we're still benefiting from his letting go to this day. Especially when this is presented the way it was intended to be presented as testimony. Not mine, his. And then aligning mine with his. Okay, so I'm going to jump to 97. It says, never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you're doing the right thing if you assume them. How would I be sure I'm doing the right thing? Yeah, by this time they're assuming an awakening, right? I've learned prayer and meditation, so I'm, I'm moving in that tangible experience of God. Power, peace, happiness, sense of direction. So I'm, I'm getting guidance from within about what's going on. And I know now intuitively when I'm moving in the right direction. Any of you know what I'm talking about? Have you had that experience and never had it broke down for you? What's up? I mean, I don't always go in the right direction, but I know what the right direction is before I reject it. Anyone else? Okay. So it says, be sure you're doing the right thing. If you assume them, helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. So how many of you would like to base your recovery on something less than a stone foundation? Probably none of us, right? We all want a stone foundation in our recovery. So I've got to take seriously that other book where he talks about what you do for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you do unto me. I better know that. Better not be a theology or a theory. 
I better take very seriously their life. Right? A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act the Good Samaritan every day if need be. It may mean the loss of many nights sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business. It may mean sharing your money and your home, counseling frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time of the day or night. Your wife may sometimes say she's neglected. A drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him if he's violent. Sometimes you'll have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. Another time you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. Occasionally you'll have to meet such conditions. How many of you had people meet those conditions for you? Came numerous times to police courts, sanitaries, jails, asylums. How many of you, after a while, didn't even know who they were, but there was somebody there, some nameless individual that came to give you a little inspiration or hope? Any of you have, have that? Twelve is the big amends, guys. Nine gets me fit. It's the fitness step. Twelve is the ability to walk in the healing without judgment and distribute it liberally. Does that make sense? The reason I want to relate to that is that is now my job description. And all of my life up until the day of my redeemed state was preparation for the ability to do that. Because I am in no position to judge. I have done that to all of these. Yes? Okay. So I'm going to go from there over to 98. Some of you that were here last week, we told you we were going to talk about what we are going to grow in effectiveness at, right? We're going to grow in effectiveness, and then we talked a little bit about what that looked like. I said we'd get in more detail this week. So here we are. It's about giving. And in page 98, it says it's not the matter of giving that's in question, but when and how to give. So I'm going to get more effective in when to give, because it's okay to not give, but to show respect, or to hear them, or to offer something else, right? And so I'm going to try and grow in consciousness of when and how. Does it make sense? So I'm not doing more harm. I don't need them dependent on me. They're probably already dependent on fallible humans. That often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcoholic commences to rely upon our assistance rather than upon God. He clamors for this or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. They say nonsense. Why do they say that? How many of you had your material needs completely neglected, still found a way to get high? So material needs got nothing to do with whether I'm going to get high once I'm going to get high. Okay. So nonsense. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence on other people ahead of dependence on God. So guys, if you're bothered by that, we're talking about self-reliance, except once you know that power in you is in you but not of you. It's not self-reliance, it's God-reliance. Does that make sense? So it says, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. So because we're getting to the end of the evening, I will say to any of you within hearing that you can get well Regardless of anyone, many of us come here with a lot of self-condemnation and then we start feeding into the family dynamic that says we'll never amount to anything anyway and a societal di dynamic that says we'll never amount to anyone anyway and I tell you, you're home, that's all a lie. We're all going to get well regardless of anyone but we need you to clean house. 
and trust this power. I appreciate you. Thanks.